Welcome back to Supreme Myths. At the outset, I want to apologize. I have a little bit of a cold today, but we will get through it, and I will try to talk as clearly as possible. I am so excited to talk to my guest today. Amanda Tyler is the Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. She is a graduate of um, Georgetown undergraduate, <clears throat> excuse me, in Texas law school. She cooked for a judge. She worked in private practice. And as director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, she is doing a lot of work on Christian nationalism, something which we all, all of us who are teaching and talking about constitutional law and other subjects have to wrestle with. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Eric. I'm very excited to talk to you. So let's begin with this. Um, you, have, you are a person of deep faith. And yet you are fighting this kind of, I call it a battle, but that's, I don't want to be too you know, crazy about this. But you're, you, are, you are trying to alert the country to the problems with Christian nationalism. So my first question is, being, a, being that you're a person of faith, how did you get involved in this? What's your background? How did you start this, this very worthwhile project, in my opinion? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I do think that my my faith background is just so integrated, not just in who I am as a person, but also in the work that I've done in the realm of law and policy. Uh, and so, you know, you talked about my background and from working on Capitol Hill as a, a member of, of, of the staff team for a rep U.S. representative, I left the Hill to lead Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, or BJC, uh, at the beginning of 2017. I, I started in my job just two weeks before uh, Donald Trump was inaugurated as president in 2017. Yikes. Um, Yikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my entire tenure leading BJC, I, I think, has been focused in many ways on understanding how this ideology of Christian nationalism threatens religious liberty. Uh, a word about BJC, and, and great job on getting our entire name correct when you said <laughs> it uh, a couple of times, um, but many of your listeners might be learning about BJC for the first time today. We're an 87-year-old education and advocacy organization that's headquartered on Capitol Hill in D.C., and our mission is faith, freedom for all. Uh, understanding uh, faith uh, and religious freedom as something that is God-given, uh, but protected by human government, um, that the government itself and the rights that the Constitution gives are not God-given, but rather are constitutional rights for everyone, and that they're best protected by strong enforcement of the First Amendment, of both the, <clears throat> excuse me, the No Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, and that both of those protections working together are essential for protecting everyone's religious freedom. And so, so, yeah. So anyway, so yeah. this is something that Baptists have cared about for a, for a long time. And it is, uh, the, it is that uh, Baptist identity that I hold um, that brought me to work at BJC, but also my commitment to religious freedom. So and the name of your organization, again, is at the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. Before I think we can discuss how Christian nationalism is, in your eyes, a threat to religious freedom, we probably should define religious freedom first. So if you had to give a working definition of religious freedom, and I mean now kind of both legally and non-legally, like just, yeah. you know, both, both in and out of court, what would be, I'm asking you an a question that has triggered books and volumes <laughs> and treatises, and I went and answered like in two minutes, but generally speaking, what is your definition of religious freedom? 
Yeah. Well, luckily, we do have some uh, resources at BJC can, that can help answer this question. We okay. have a one-pager uh, called What is Religious Liberty? Um, and religious liberty and religious freedom I use interchangeably. I think they mean the same thing. But it is, at basis, a freedom to believe, which is unlimited, and a freedom to act on those beliefs, which is limited, which is limited by without the unnecessary interference of government. And of course, like all of our freedoms, the freedom to act is limited because if we had an unlimited act, uh, freedom to act on our beliefs, then we'd be running into other people's uh, actions and beliefs all, and freedoms all the time. And so we've worked out this careful balance, um, I think over many, many years of constitutional law, we have not always gotten it correct. Of course, it's not just constitutional law, but statutory protections as well, um, that says that the government will stay neutral when it comes to religion, neither advancing nor denigrating religion and its practice. And this is between uh, different religions, uh, between uh, different expressions of even one religion, like Christianity, and between religion and non-religion, that there's no preference for the religious over the non-religious. Um, and that's because of this fundamental understanding that belonging in American society should never depend on what we believe or how we practice religion, or if we practice religion, or how we identify religiously. Um, so that's kind of my overarching uh, definition of religious freedom, which is very much an ideal or a promise uh, that I believe has never been fully realized. Um, I agree with you. I this agree country, with that. maybe yes. anywhere, but 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 yes. not in this country for yeah. sure. I'm assuming we move towards the goal. I don't know if we ever get to the goal, but moving towards it. Do you believe in religious exemptions to generally applicable laws as a constitutional matter first and then second as a statutory matter? Uh, yes and yes. I, I believe in the importance of exemptions from generally okay. applicable law. And, and that's because that is one of the ways. Um, now, I, do I believe in absolute exemptions? No. I think that um, – you know there are there is a way to work out a balance, and if you if you grant an exemption in every case, then it undercuts you know the need the the idea that there is a government interest that could trump uh, a religious exercise. Again, the the difference between belief and exercise, um, and I think where where I think the Supreme Court has gone astray among other places in recent years is this broadening of the idea of free exercise way wow. beyond how it has ever been uh, interpreted well, well, before. Amanda, the reason you got me here, because I'm the, only I'm the only law professor in the United States, I think, who has <laughs> written the following. And I've written it like three times, and everybody yells at me. If you're really a textual, not you, if, if judges are really textualists, both RIFRA's state and national, and the Constitution talks about the free exercise of religion. And I think the government should not be able to put barriers in the way of people exercising their religion, absent a very strong reason. But to me, selling widgets is not free exercise of religion. Making wedding cakes might be a free speech issue, but it's not a free exercise issue because you're not exercising religion when you sell a wedding cake to somebody, and so on and so forth. Do you agree with me on this? Well, I... 
And all these things, I think they're so case by case, right? Okay, but fair, I think fair. on on some of the examples that you give, yes, absolutely. You know, I think that the way that the Supreme Court has interpreted free exercise to mean pretty much absolutely anything. Um, and yes. I think some of the cases um, that I find particularly troubling um, had to do with the contraception uh, mandate yes. um, and the way that, again, there were so many different cases back and forth, yes. but the way that the Obama administration tried very hard um, to provide an exemption um, for religious organizations from that mandate, but they refused to take yes for an answer, for you know, an answer, they refused, yes. you know, and so at that point, you cheapen the whole idea of what an exemption is um, to the peril, I think, in the long run of a society's exception of or, or a society's view of exemptions to begin with. And wow, so the organization, so yeah, the organization I lead actually filed a friend of the court brief um, in one of those cases, yeah. um, the Zubik case, um, kind of making this argument um, in that in that case that we do believe in exemptions, but this is not the right um, case, that, that in this case they've granted an exemption and they just need to take yes for an answer. I really appreciate that answer. Amanda, there's kind of a common law rule on my podcast that once a podcast, I have to mention Judge Richard Posner, who I was very good friends with for a very long time. I'm sorry about this side, this digression. Um, I was in the courtroom in the Seventh Circuit when he heard the Notre Dame case involving uh -huh. contraception. Mm -hmm. you, said it, you said it perfectly. Notre Dame wouldn't take yes for an answer. They were given the exemption. <laughs> Um, so what they were doing, in my opinion, was, you don't have to respond to this, but in my opinion, they were making a political statement. They didn't, it wasn't about the exemption, but you don't have to respond to that. What I do want to say is I was in the courtroom that day. Everyone who has followed this knows Judge Posner was very angry that day and yelled at the attorneys in a way Judge Posner was a good friend of mine. I, and no one thinks it's appropriate the way he acted that day. But I asked him afterwards, because I was right there, was that the maddest you've ever been in court? And he said, just about. Just about wow. because because what he said was they've won the case. What are they doing? They've gotten what they wanted. What are they doing? Like he couldn't. And he asked them 15 times to explain how this was burning their religious exercise and they couldn't answer it. And it was just anyway. So I think I'm 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 pleased to hear you. You filed a uh, amicus brief in a case raising those similar issues. And um, boy, I, I've seen him mad a lot. But that was about as mad as I ever saw him because he was so frustrated for exactly the reason you said. You, you're winning. What are you doing? <laughs> anyway, okay. Yeah. Christian nationalism. How do we define that? How much of a threat is it? And what is your organization doing about it? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll take us to the end of the show, probably. Yes. Yes. Um, no, so I, I do think it's really important to have clear definitions around Christian nationalism. And the one that we've consistently used now for almost five years is this one, that Christian nationalism is a political ideology and a cultural framework that tries to merge American and Christian identities. Um, and the way we use the definition is in our modern American context. Um, it fits into this larger uh, ideology of religious nationalism, which has been a recurrent problem throughout history and around the world right. today. So um, this is not something new of the last few years, um, but I think that the interest and the terminology around Christian nationalism is relatively new. Um, I have called Christian nationalism the single greatest threat to the achievement of religious freedom in the United States today. And that's because it perpetuates this sense of belonging 
in American society that is limited to the people who held power at the founding of the country. It kind of, uh, you know, encapsulates all of the American experiment experience into this myth of a Christian nation, um, this idea that the country was founded by white Christians in order to protect and perpetuate Christianity, and honestly, white Christianity, um, because yes. it is really impossible to, uh, I think, take away uh, the ideas of racism and white supremacy from what's baked in to Christian nationalism. I call it Christian nationalism usually and not white Christian nationalism just because it's an ideology that impacts us all. In other words, in order to espouse Christian nationalism, you don't have to be white. Um, that Christian nationalism as an ideology shows up you know, in all different racial and ethnic groups and all different religious communities in all different areas of the country, um, how much someone uh, embraces it or rejects it, um, you know, varies between all of those different um, categories, but it's, it's an ideology that impacts us all. And so, it, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just going to get to big, what are we doing about it, but go yeah, ahead. Yeah, but go that, ahead. Let's, let's, let's do the definition first a little bit. Um, thank you. Um, so I'm going to go out on a limb. I may be wrong about this. I'm going to suggest to you and my audience that I don't think Sam Alito, for example, is an evangelical. I don't believe he identifies. I don't think he identifies as an he's evangelical Catholic. Person. He's a right. Catholic, right, yeah. But he's definitely, in my opinion, a Christian nationalist. So the only point I want to make on this is simply this, what you're saying transcends, when people hear Christian nationalism, I think, they think of Jerry Falwell, Jerry Falwell Jr., Pat Robertson, the tele-evangelists, who make billions of dollars, or I think it's billions, maybe hundreds of millions, Joel Osteen, whoever it is, um, who, you know, that's what they think of. But I don't think that's, that's what you're saying, right? You're, this is going broader than that. That's a subset of what you're talking about. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I think the definition I gave is, is very broad. You know, it's yeah. this idea that to be an American, one has to be a Christian, and in fact, a right. certain kind of Christian. And it is so deeply seated in our culture and in our consciousness that we've all picked this up to some degree, right? And so when I think about Christian nationalism, uh, I think about it, and, and I rely on sociologists of religion and other public surveys that have studied this, um, not as a a diagnosis or something you either have or you don't, or even, you know, that someone is or is not a Christian nationalist, but rather as a spectrum of, or of, of orientations yeah. um, that like racism, we all have an opportunity every day to reject it or to embrace it or to be somewhere along a spectrum. And the public surveys have shown that the majority of Americans, more than 60%, are on neither end. They've never they've neither <laughs> sure. fully embraced it or fully rejected it, but are somewhere in the middle. Um, and so I think this understanding of it as an ideology is really much more helpful as a frame for us to think about how we work to eventually dismantle it. Um, someone like Justice Alito in his writings and in his way that he talks about belonging in America, I think often does look like someone who is embracing Christian nationalism. Um, but I always hold out hope that people can move <laughs> away from the ideology um, right. with, with greater understanding and consciousness of, of how it attacks our freedoms. 
And before we, I ask you again how your organization is fighting it, let me just, breaking news, it's, it's, we're taping this on Tuesday morning at 11.25. This will be released this week sometime. Um, when you, by the time you listen to this audience, you have heard probably that Justice Alito just this morning wrote a separate opinion in a case in the Supreme Court where he's, I'm not going to go into details, but he's still fighting the Obergefell battle. He is, uh, two jurors were dismissed from a case um, because it was an LGBTQ discrimination case. They said homosexuality was a sin, so they were excused from the case. Um, and Alito thought that was wrong. There were some technical issues in the case, so he didn't want to grant cert. But he said, this is another example of, of what, I, what I warned you about in Obergefell, that people who think homosexuality is a sin are going to be discriminated against. And I just think this is all, what you're, what you're doing is so timely. I mean, just this morning, Alito makes news what I think in, in a Christian nationalist kind of way. That's what he's doing there, I think. In any event, what is your organization doing to, you call it a threat, and I'm glad you call it that. What are we doing to, to, to counter this threat? Well, uh, now almost five years ago, uh, really almost to the day, we gathered with uh, some of our traditional partners, coalition partners that we worked in advocacy in Washington and said, you know, we're really sensing um, that this ideology of Christian nationalism is on the rise and it's becoming more deadly. Um, this was just a few months after the attack at Tree of Life Synagogue, um, but that came after right. the uh, Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, after the shooting at Mother Emanuel AME Church. Um, all of these are examples of how a Christian nationalist ideology can drive white supremacist violence and had done so in houses of worship. And so it was initially um, just this, this deadly threat uh, and, and how that was being uh, combined with the scourge of vi gun violence and extremism in houses of worship that drove us to say, we need to do something about this, but to provide a platform for people of faith who are concerned about this to join together and to oppose Christian nationalism. And so from those initial meetings, uh, we formed a campaign called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. It was initially our uh, interfaith allies who said to us, um, you know, we think you're absolutely right that this is an urgent threat, but we think you Christians are the ones who have the most moral authority to call out Christian nationalism as a departure from the teachings of Jesus, which I believe it is, um, but also that we simply, as people who are not Christians, we do not feel safe in our society right now and calling out Christian nationalism with the kind of force that it needs to be called out at this time. And so with that mandate um, from, from them is how we started Christians Against Christian Nationalism. Uh, it started as a, an online campaign, a statement of principles that people could sign on to, and that still exists at christiansagainstchristiannationalism.org. And we have over 35,000 people who have joined the campaign by signing the statement. Um, but we have also over time developed a ton of resources around understanding what Christian 
Christian nationalism is, but also resources um, that for particularly for people of faith, for Christians in Christian community to work to dismantle it from themselves and then to work with others in their community. And then our most recent uh, iteration of the campaign has really led us uh, into the field of community organizing uh, to do some work on the ground, intentional work in particular communities to build interfaith, multiracial, multi-ethnic campaigns of people who are committed to working against Christian nationalism in their particular contexts. And we've started a pilot project um, in Dallas-Fort Worth, which is actually where I live now, is in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, but to really work um, you know, intentionally in one community, one pretty large community, um, but to see what could happen if we really concentrate on local organizing. And we think this will be work we'll do for many years to come. So I didn't, uh, people who listen here know I usually send my guests a, a rough roadmap for the conversation, but I do verge. I apologize for this. I'm going to verge now. Um, you don't have to answer this question if you find it troubling. Um, so you, you mentioned you're, you're living in Dallas, Fort Worth right now. Um, I'm just wondering on a personal level, we'll get back to the official stuff in a second. Do you get pushback in Texas from what you're doing? I would think Texas would be a hard, even Dallas, which is an urban center, still hard, hard to do it. It's easier to do what you're doing in New York City or San Francisco, I think, than Texas. Are you finding yeah. that challenging? Yeah, I mean, we find pushback here. We find pushback you know, nationwide as well. Yeah. I think yeah. I think often, um, and you know, we are the way that we organize, we're, we're looking for coalitions of the interested and the willing, right? We are not going, you know, into the heart of Christian nationalism to do our organizing. We think there is fertile ground among that 60% of the American population that's somewhere right. in the middle, right? And so right. often the pushback we get is misunderstanding, I think, about the term. Um, I think one thing that is uh, a, a red herring here when it comes to Christian nationalism is that this is somehow a partisan term. You know, Democrats can embrace Christian nationalism and so can Republicans. And to oppose it is not to be aligned with a certain political party either. And so I think we're trying to overcome some of the just inherent polarization in our society right now to, to build this uh, diverse coalition that's working against it. Um, but Part of the reason we chose to come to Dallas-Fort Worth, to North Texas, is one, there are a lot of examples of Christian nationalism happening here. There's lots to organize against, but also there's a vibrant faith community here um, that we already had a thousand people who had signed our campaign statement from this region. We knew that there were people here who were wanting to work on this. And so um, I think that that might surprise people is that the, of that there is this vibrant community that um, is, you know, crosses partisan lines, crosses ideological lines, um, but who is all, who are also very concerned about how Christian nationalism threatens not just American democracy, but also an authentic Christian witness. So that so Christians against Christian nationalism is a fabulous name <laughs> for something. I, I just wanted to take a slight tangent. So. Um, People who follow this pod know I'm considered a critic of the Supreme Court. A, I'd like to think I'm a nonpartisan critic, kind of, because I was a, I'm pro-choice but against Roe. I'm, you know, all that stuff. Um, I've, I, I've written several articles and things called the case against constitutional law or constitutional law is not law. And you've just inspired me 
to find about four or five of the people in this world who agree with me and start constitutional law professors against constitutional law. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm actually, I'm actually going to make a serious point. Christians against Christian nationalism is a much more potent, important title than people against Christian nationalism or Americans against Christian nationalism, just like constitutional law professors against constitutional law would be more potent than people against constitutional law or whatever. Um, I, I really, I really, really appreciate and respect that title because I think it's, and, and then emotionally, you know, I, you know, I, I'm at my most emotional when talking about constitutional law with people who agree with me, but not enough. Hmm. And I suspect if I was Christian, if I was someone like you, from what I can glean from your faith, I don't want to assume by your faith beliefs. But no, I would think you would be offended more than the average person by someone taking kind of your faith and throwing it out into the world in a way which you think is very dangerous to the world. Is that fair? Is that a fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that that is that very sentiment is what we've heard from people about what drives them to get involved in our campaign. Um, they're right. deeply concerned about what is happening in their communities and the impact that Christian nationalism and policies is having on equality and freedom in our communities. Um, but they are also deeply offended um, to see a faith that they hold dear, and I'm one of these people, to see that faith used to justify yes. such injustice, to justify violence. Um, and, and so that has motivated them. And then this sense of, of belonging in a campaign of other people who are have equally, um, right. you know, been inspired right. uh, to get involved in in this fight, right? And it is a fight, and not in a violent way, but in yes. a way that we have to engage, um, and we yes. have to engage proactively um, because because the threat is very real. And the analogy would be: um, so I believe in great judicial deference across the board, and when I see the Supreme Court taking my life's work, constitutional law and ending affirmative action, or super, char I don't, you don't have to comment on these issues, but, or supercharging the Second Amendment in a way that I find to be just, well, fatal, or just, just tragic in every imaginable way. That's like my life work they're taking and they're screwing it up in ways that kill people, actually, in, in Second Amendment context. Um, so I can understand you're great, you, I really get your passion for this. Um, so you said something, though, that if I don't ask you about, my audience will kill me, so I have to ask you about it. Um, <laughs> you, kind of, you kind of danced over this a little bit. Um, in 1968 America or 75 America, I don't think we'd be having this conversation I'm about to ask you about. But starting in the late 1970s, when Ed Meese basically brought Christian evangelicals into the Republican Party's fold, since then, as of today, um, it's not really, I don't know very many Democrats who are Christian nationalists. Now, maybe they exist in the world, but I don't know them. They certainly don't speak loudly. Almost everybody who speaks loudly about Christian nationalism represents themselves as Republicans. So my question is, first, is, has religion become too politicized, A, but B, it's not really an across-the-board thing. This is a, in 2024, this is a Republican Party thing. It's not a Democrat party thing. And if you can't answer that question for reasons involving charities yeah. and stuff, feel free. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th I think it's a really provocative question, and there are a lot of layers to it. Um, so the one of the questions um, is, has religion become too politicized? And I'm like, well, it kind of depends on what you mean. I think that religion at its base is inherently political. Uh, that is um, to be involved in public life. Um, and a lot of people, and I am one of them, 
feel compelled by their faith to be involved in public life. Um, that in itself is not the problem. One of the problems is when faith is too tightly aligned in a partisan way with any one particular party or with any one candidate. And there are legal reasons not to do that that come from the tax code um, that sure. say that 501c3s <laughs> are not to engage um, in a partisan office, uh, partisan yes. elections, right? Yes. Um, and that's protection. It's called the Johnson Amendment. Um, and that is a protection for the charitable sector um, so that it is not co-opted um, by partisan politicians or by political parties that are very eager to co-opt any kind of voting block they can, including um, religious and uh uh, voting blocks, but also other nonprofit charities. Um, and so there's a good reason um, for not just beyond the complying with tax law, but there's actually a very good reason not to become too aligned uh, with partisan politics. And what we have seen, and I, I will say that Yes, Christian nationalism is a problem in both parties. I was just driving in Dallas last week and saw a, a sign for we're, we're having primaries here. Yes. We participate yes. in Super Tuesday. And a Democrat for U.S. Congress had a, a sign that had God, country, faith, like big on his sign, Jeez. on his political sign. Okay. So it is a problem in both parties. But I think we see it as a more pronounced problem in the Republican Party because of this strong alignment with white evangelicals and the party. And this, as you note, has been happening for decades. Um, and then we see it, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, extreme, you know, member of Congress. Nut. An extreme uh, nut, sorry, an extreme it, nut. Go ahead. But she was, I want to be clear. Those are my words, not my guess, but she's enough. Go ahead. <laughs> well, she also was the first member of Congress to actually self-identify as a Christian nationalist. You know, right. I said, I don't, I don't label people as Christian nationalists, but if, unless if they self-identify, well, she self-identified, I am a proud Christian nationalist and the Republican party should be the party of Christian nationalism. And so right. when, when someone like that says that, and then when you hear deafening silence from the rest of the Republican Party in response to that, then that is the impression that's given, that one party has been taken over by Christian nationalism. And then you, because of our polarized system, you kind of think the other is the opposite of it. And I think that that is, um, I think the truth is more complicated than that. Um, but I think it, at the base, you know, we see what's happened to the parties because of this alignment. But we also see what's happened to the religious institutions, that they yes. have lost their connection to faith and become much more enticed by and aligned with power. Um, and that that difference between power, um, which is very different than the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who was always on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized, who, who came to turn over our sense of worldly power in many ways. And so to see, um, you know, some of these religious institutions become totally bought in to pursuing political power and to, uh, you know, forget their religious motivations along the way or to compromise them. And let me just say, this is not just a problem of the last few decades. We have seen this happen with religious institutions sure. over many centuries, right? Sure. In the way that the Bible was used to justify slavery, 
and segregation and racial violence and all of those things, um, we have seen ways that the that we that religious institutions and individuals have sacrificed theological positions uh, in service of power. And this is just how we're seeing it play out in our modern context. I've done 110 podcasts, give or take, and that's one of the best five minutes of any podcast I've ever done. I mean, that I, I really, I really appreciate that answer. Um, and, and it raised about 27 different things in my mind. So, um, um, and that's what a good conversation is supposed to do. So thank you. Um, so I, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but your answer just made me want to ask you this. So, you know, I'm not, I am not a person of faith. So I will tell the world, the world knows that about me already. I'm just not a person of faith. I've always wondered how um, people of deep faith, and sincere faith handle the idea of other people of deep faith supporting Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Because to me, I just don't understand, and, and, and maybe you have some insight that I don't because you hobnob much more than I do with people of deep faith. Um, I don't understand how someone could look at him and say, I'm a Christian, I stand for what Jesus stood for in all the ways you just described so beautifully. Um, but I'm going to support this man, even though I know he might be the least Christian man in America today. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't understand the disconnect. Do you have any insight into that disconnect? Well, I, you know, each person has a very <laughs> personal reason for voting sure. or not voting in sure. a number of different ways. I think what I find, um, you know, I do have some different insights and, and some of them have come from my own experience. And, and I, I'll go to like a very extreme example to give you a sense of, of where I've seen some of the most loyal supporters of Donald Trump. And that is in this uh, tour that is touring America called the Reawaken America Tour um, oh, that is yeah. led by Michael Flynn, um, disgraced former general, um, who um, is, is really you know, just a, a mix of Christian nationalism and conspiracy theories and election denialism and ultimate allegiance to Trump. And so I see how this group of leaders thoroughly, you know, weaves in Christian prayer and sermons and song um, into this vast web of lies, right? And so I do think that there is active deceit going on among some quarters um, and that they've so infused it with a version of religious exercise with re religious fervor um, that it is very difficult for people to kind of separate those two. And that's one of the real dangers of Christian nationalism. Um, but what I find, I guess, so I find that part deeply troubling and, and very sad. Um, but I also am I'm particularly galled by, you know, people who say they are voting for Trump, you know, apart from this you know, people who are so bought into this conspiracy theory, but right. because because Trump is the Christian candidate, or because we need yes. a Christian leader in, or he's God's office. choice. Some are saying he's God's choice to lead. Yeah, ordained, ordained by yes. God, um, yes. and that is um, that is dangerous. And and we saw that. You know, we saw what can happen on January 6th when people yes. are told over and over again that this candidate has been ordained by God, that it is God's will um, that this person take office. And then when he doesn't, um, because he loses an election, 
then they say, well, then the election must be stolen, must be rigged because God doesn't make mistakes like that. And so we, we see that, you know, what the consequences are and we're seeing it just history repeat itself right now um, where we continue to have these, um, you know, these prophecies that Donald Trump will be president again, um, just setting us all up for if if he's not reelected, um, that people will just throw into question the entire validity of the of the election. So we've got about 10 minutes left. And um, th- that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, and I want to ask you one big question and then maybe a few small questions if we have time. And, and the big question is this. Um, I'm not I'm sure I am phrasing this terribly and you can feel free to point that out. Um, do you view the um, disputes or, or, or the, whatever's going on now between Christians and, 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 and Christian nationalists, do you view that as a fight between good and evil? Personally, not professionally, just personally. Do you view that as a fight between good and evil? No, I don't. Okay. And, and that's okay. because I just kind of reject the binary that's inherent in okay. that. And, and I think that okay. the binary, I mean, I think that, I think human beings are much more complicated than that, right? And so yes. I, I, okay. I also, um, I also recognize the complicity that so many people, including people like me, you know, have in the perpetuation of Christian nationalism. That until we are actively involved in working to root it out, and even when we are, we still make mistakes, right? And so, um, I just, and I also think that the language of good and evil, that that is often what is used by people who are so embracing of Christian nationalism to justify violence, that I find right. it to be very dangerous. Um, fair enough. And so, yeah. I don't adopt that. That's fair. Myself. No, that's fair. I think it's a great answer. Um, so you, you initiated all this great work you're doing. You're a lawyer. You went to law school. You studied the law. Um, I have a couple of just quick questions I want to throw at you because I'm very curious about your answers. I, and by the way, audience, I don't know how she's going to answer these questions. So I'm not <laughs> – usually I know – I'm like someone on cross-examination. I like to know the answers to my questions, but I don't know how you answer these questions. Um, so first of all, um, religious symbols on government property. Let's just take, uh, let's just take the, the, the paradigm case, which actually happened. State of Maryland allows a huge, huge cross on public land that can be seen by everybody driving on these public roads. Um, and the court says that's fine, no problem with a huge cross on government property. And then we have Ten Commandments in courthouses, Ten Commandments in Texas, all this stuff. You have a general thought on all this? Yeah, and some pretty particular ones too, by virtue of uh, the. Okay. The organization I lead filed briefs in those cases. So in the okay. in the Maryland Cross case, um, we filed uh, in support of the American Humanist Association who challenged the constitutionality. Yes. Oh, good for you. Um, good for you. And believe that they were correct, that that was an example of a government establishment of religion. Um, but our brief, uh, our friend of the court brief in that case was really focused on the cross is a Christian symbol because what happens when the government um, co-ops Christian symbols is they often uh, rip them of their religious significance and strip them of their religious significance. And in this case, the cross is the central symbol of right. Christianity. <laughs> um, right. And in the in that case, the government in their zeal to keep up that cross um, and I remember I, I was in the courtroom actually the day that that case was argued and Neil Cutyall, who I have enormous respect for as an advocate, but he was representing the county in Maryland I in know, that case. I know, it drives me crazy. <laughs> and he and they were making the argument that this was just a generic symbol of sacrifice, 
And we, in our brief, we said that is deeply offensive to Christians to say that the cross is just a generic symbol. And it's also offensive to non-Christians who know better, who know that it it means more than that. Um, And so, you know, I think the justices in that case, they made a choice to say that it would be more divisive at this point to take down this cross that had been standing for so long. Um, I understand why they did that. And at the same time, I worry um, that that case sets a precedent um, for the future, for future government um, establishments of religion. Um, and I also see that case as a, a, as a vestige of, of Christian nationalism from another high point of Christian nationalism in our history and in the post-war yeah. period. Amanda, thank you so much for coming on. And I want to say one thing. Um, you know, I do a lot of these podcasts almost exclusively with law professors, not all, but most with law professors. And I so respect, you know, we, we write and think and talk about stuff. Maybe we don't do as much as we should. And I'm so impressed with all the work you're putting into this, with your drive for this. And I absolutely think it is crucial that this position be articulated by people of faith. I really do. It's one thing when I criticize you know, Christian nationalism, but when you do it, it is so much more powerful. Um, can you just, you, you have, if you're going to tell people what they can do about this just in their, in their day, you know, they want to do something about this. What's the one or two things they can do? And then we'll call it a day. Well, I'd say go to ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org, and it is a resource. Um, despite its name, you don't have to be a Christian to engage in our campaign. Um, to sign the Statement of Principles, you do, but there are so many other ways that you can get engaged in the local organizing that we're doing, in uh, accessing the resources we have, and in just staying in touch with us as we do uh, both events, but also interventions in communities that are most impacted by Christian nationalism. And I, I just always say the problem is much too big for any one group of people to do everything. I think that Christians and particularly white Christians um, bear the most responsibility um, because we've done the most to perpetuate the harm in this case. Um, but it's going to take a broad and diverse coalition working together to end Christian nationalism. And that is our ultimate goal. It will take generations to do it, but it is something that uh, we are actively involved in now and would invite all your listeners to join us. Well, I'm deeply grateful that you're doing this work. And thank you for coming on Supreme Myths. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you.